The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Okay, so uh, John 17 is our text, uh, verses 14 to 17, if you want to turn there. And uh, I just want to ask, uh, you know, think about, what is our, what's our vision? <laughs> Sometimes you ask, it, you know, a vision statement. What's our vision for Bear Creek Church? What do we, what do we want to be as a church? Or who are we as a church? Um, a few things, you know, that, that I think that we've said over the years that, that our founding pastor, Pastor Dale, has really established and the, the elders have agreed and this is, this is kind of our personality, who we want to be. We want to be welcoming. We want to be friendly. And that's why Pastor Dale's always encouraging us to, you know, to stay and to, to greet people, to get to know people, to not, not just hang out with people that you're that you're already friends with or comfortable with. And so we want to be welcoming. We want to be friendly. We want to be, we want to be sensitive to those who, who in other situations experience rejection or isolation, maybe because of, of disability. And so we want them especially to know that they're loved, that we want them here, uh, that, um, that we're glad that that they're a part of this church family. We want to be a family. We mentioned family a lot. So when someone, uh, you know, think of family. Um, typically, someone's going to annoy you in a family, right? Well, hey, good news. That's going to happen here too. And the good thing about families, is, you know, we don't tend to just get annoyed and take off and I forget you. You are, you are dead to me now. You are no longer family. But that tends to happen in church. We're a family. People will annoy you. That means overlooking. That means forgiving. That means working things out. That means staying. That means the world seeing that kind of forgiveness and love and saying, wow, something's different about them. That's our witness to the world. We want to be a family. We want our connections to be about Jesus. Um, Not common things that you know, clubs get together over or people join over. We don't want to be just everybody the same age, everybody in the same place in life, same race, same politics, same hobbies, um, same musical tastes, same socioeconomic status. No, we want to, we want to be a mix. We want to have home groups that are a mix of that too. So it's really good to go and gain wisdom from someone who's had a lot of experience in life and, uh, and for you to pass that on to others as well. So we want to, we do, we want to be humble. We want to know that there's always a need to grow and improve. We want to be um, lighthearted, a people who easily laugh. Uh, yet we want to be very serious when it comes to theology, when it comes to knowing what we believe about God, because that's the most important thing that we know is what we believe about God. We want to be, um, I don't know, maybe a little more organized and actually write down our vision statement one day. So, you know, different churches, um, they have a different vision. 
different vision statement because they're made up of of different personalities. They have different gifts that God has given them, different abilities, different ways in which to minister to their particular community. And I think also of, you know, I I really love uh, listening to Tim Keller. He preaches in Manhattan. Well, that's a really different church because it's in Manhattan. Uh, It's made up of people who are in the arts and finance and professional people. It's going to be really different than a church that's in a small farming community. And so there are going to be some of those differences between churches, but there's another sense in which all churches should look the same. Because Jesus gives us a vision that applies to every church. So there can be a lot of, of good things that, that define us, but ultimately we want what Jesus wants us to be. And John 17 has something to say about this. But uh, before we go there together, let's pray. Father, we recognize your, your wisdom in a variety of local churches with different histories and cultures and gifts, different opportunities or ways to minister to their particular communities. We ask your blessing on the many churches of the Rogue Valley, that your gospel would be preached, that your people would be blessed, that they would grow in their love for one another, that they would uh, reach out to the community around them, be salt and light. We recognize and appreciate these differences, and yet ultimately, Lord, we want to be who you've called us to be. We want to submit to the fact that this is not our church, it's yours. And so give us eyes to see, give us wisdom in applying this, give us the joy of Jesus as we do. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, John 17, I'm just going to focus on verses 14 through 17. Jesus prays, I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. This is the word of God. So our focus this morning... It's on this middle section of Jesus' high priestly prayer, a section that we've already identified as Jesus praying for these original disciples. Jesus' vision for his church begins with them, and it extends to us. And the connection is the word of God. The word that originates with the Father, comes through the Son, is given to them, and then look at uh, look at verses um, 7 and 8. We see this, this connection, this progression. Uh, Jesus says, Now they, they know, Father, that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. It begins with these disciples, receiving the revelation of God the Father in sending his Son. The connection is the word of God. 
It originates with the Father who gives this revelation to the Son, glorifying the Father, showing us who the Father is, who then gives it to these first disciples. And then what do we see in verse 20? We see that it's given to us. For Jesus prays, I do not ask for these, these first disciples only, but also for those who will believe in me through their their word. From the Father to the Son, received by the disciples and then given to the church throughout history. These first disciples, they had a unique calling that had to do with the word of God. Jesus was sent and he, he did and said what the Father willed for him to do and say. And now he's, Jesus is facing the cross. He's about to go. He's been preparing these disciples for his departure. And he prays for their protection so that God's word would continue on, ultimately. Their unique calling has to do uh, with their witness and the writing of the New Testament, which glorifies Jesus, which is the word spoken of in verse 20, which is the reason that we've come to believe in the gospel. So remember that what Jesus told them earlier in in chapter 16, he said, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He's speaking again to his disciples, specifically to them, The Holy Spirit's going to guide you in all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit's going to remind them of all of the things that Jesus has said. And it's their unique calling to, well, to write the New Testament, which glorifies Jesus. And this is good news for us. It shows us that that what we have is what God intended. Is there any doubt about the Father granting what the Son prays? That he won't keep and protect his word for his church, And that, we believe, is evidence that God has answered Jesus' prayer. So what should we do with the person who says, I have a new word. I have a prophetic word from the Lord. God has something more. We hear that kind of talk. What should we do? Well, what we should do is recognize that they're either deceived or they're a liar. We should recognize that God's truth comes to us through the apostles who received it from Jesus by the help of the Holy Spirit. And this is how God has given us his word. So, Joseph Smith was a liar. Any person who says that God's word is incomplete, that there's more, another revelation, or that what we have is corrupt, that person is a liar. God is sovereign, and he certainly answered Jesus' prayer to keep these disciples in the truth of God's word. 
Okay, and, you know, as an intentional rabbit trail, this is why we should cringe when people, Christians, say things like, you know, God told me, or I have a word of prophecy. And yes, I want to, I don't want to deny that God speaks to us. He speaks to us. He speaks to us through his word. He, he guides us by his spirit in accordance with his word. And yes, God is personal and intimate, and he, he gives impressions and guidance through life, but this is not the same as his authoritative word. The only certain message is his word. And so, we need to be very clear in how we speak and what we mean. Because the apostles had a unique calling. And what we have today is what God speaks to us through them. Don't listen to your heart. Don't go looking for another word. Jesus is not calling you through some book that's not the Bible. We have everything that we need for life and godliness in the Bible. God has not left us with a partial truth. Okay, back to our text. There's a couple of threats to these disciples that Jesus sees and he prays about. First is is this hatred of the world. He says in verse 14 that because of the word given to them, the word that that has forever changed them, that because of this, the world will hate them. The world hates those who have received the truth of God's word and have been born again. If you're no longer like the world, and that's what God's word does, changes us. So if you're no longer like the world, if you're, if you're wanting to live for Jesus and be like Jesus, then of course people will hate you because there's something about you that's a threat. Like Jesus was a threat. Verse 14 says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. The word that they received from Jesus evidently changed them because they used to be like everyone else. But Jesus says that now they're not of the world. The word, the revelation of God, the gospel has brought about a change. A change that the world sees, a change that reminds them of Jesus. And since the world hated Jesus, shouldn't it hate them and us as well? Okay, here's a strange question for you. Um, it's, it's a strange question to ask maybe, um, you know, what's wrong with me? Why don't people hate me? Why don't people hate me? You know, for the, for the right reason. Um, you know, then I, for me, I, I comfort myself by saying, you know, don't worry. They're out there. Maybe a bunch of people really do. I comfort myself. Maybe a bunch of people really do hate me. They're just not telling me. I joke. But it really is a serious question. Do I resemble Jesus? If I did, 
And it's not that our, you know, it's not that our goal should be to bring about hatred. There are a lot of ways to make people hate you, but the the only good reason is that we remind them of Jesus. So your solution to this problem of why people don't hate me is not to be, you know, more obnoxious and mean. That's not who Jesus is. But if you're living for God's glory, and this makes people feel guilty about their sin, if they don't like the light of the truth in you, well, that's more like it. The goal isn't to make people even feel guilty. But if your love for Jesus has this effect, then I think that's what Jesus had in mind. The gospel offends. The gospel tells people that they actually deserve to go to hell. And that in the eyes of God, they're not actually innocent. He's not okay with them. It tells them that their works are not enough. And they, like us, need a savior. The righteousness of Jesus exposed people to their own sin. And for this, they hated him. And if we represent him, then they'll hate us too. If we stand up for, uh, well, nowadays, if we stand up for the exclusivity of Christianity because, well, we don't want people to walk off the cliff in Islam or some other world religion or some other belief to forever um, feel the the guilt of a works-based religion that ultimately ends in eternal damnation, if we speak the truth in love and our pluralistic society hates us for it, then aren't we just reminding them of the one who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if people don't hate us for the right reason, then it's probably because we're not sharing the gospel or we're not living in the world of unbelievers. And it is God's intention, that's something interesting in our text, it is God's intention that we live in the world. Notice verse 15. It says that Jesus prays, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. This tells us the monastic life, the isolated Christian bubble is not what Jesus did and not what he prayed for us. Okay, now I'm speaking as someone whose family owns a Christian bookstore and as someone who went to a Christian school and who as a parent chose to homeschool our children and I would argue that there's wisdom in all of these things, and yet I'd also argue that there's a danger in them as well, a danger that we're removing ourselves from the world that Jesus wants us to live in. There's wisdom in it, but there's also a lot of fear that keeps us from engaging and living in the world. It's not an easy thing to discern, is it? Because, yes, there's wisdom. We want to protect. We want to, to teach. We want to pre- 
prepare for life in the world, a world that should hate us and want to pull us into sin and error. So each family really needs to discern what's best. But the goal really should be preparing and equipping for the sake of loving our neighbor who will likely hate us when we confront them with the truth. That's the reality. The goal is not to create our own little Christian subculture that isolates and ultimately disobeys the command to go and make disciples. Jesus intended and prayed for us to be in the world, but not of the world. To be salt and light with the full realization that the world will love the darkness when we expose the light to them. So, pray for wisdom as you prepare and as you equip your family to live in the world. That's the goal. It's a scary reality that we're not, we're not meant to avoid. So, pray for protection for those, from those who hate you. Pray, as Jesus did, about another threat. Another threat to be kept, he says, to be kept from the evil one. The evil one or Satan who wants to corrupt you. So that's the second threat. Verse 15 has to do with both the world and the evil one. The world will hate us if we resemble Jesus. And the evil one, Satan, wants to do us harm. He's a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. One threat is more obvious, like persecution. And the other threat, the second threat, kind of sneaks up on us and tempts us to compromise. You see it in a variety of ways. You see it in, in churches that succumb to, to a relativistic mindset. Uh, instead of holding to absolute truth given to us in the Bible, they do what seems right in their own minds. They go with the flow of culture and they compromise biblical truths concerning things like marriage and sexual sin and abortion and gender issues in the church. They deny that there's a, a real place called hell or say that there are many ways to heaven or that the miracles of the Bible really didn't happen, and then most of all, that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, and he's just a great example for us to follow. Compromise, corruption. We see it all over the place. You see it in churches that, that uh, maybe in other ways, care more about money in a building than they and numbers and equate that to success instead of a faithfulness to God's word. Not that there's anything wrong with a lot of giving and, and a big building if they have the priorities right, if that's not what they're all about. But churches can become materialistic as well. It's sneaky. You know, the other day a brother sent me a video of a couple of pastors and he wanted to see if I agreed with what concerned him. Apparently these are really popular guys. I've never heard of them before. Big, huge churches. And I agreed that their teaching was unbiblical. But something else really stood out to me when I watched that little video. 
they never once quoted scripture. They never once declared the truth of God's word or made an argument from scripture. It was just their Christianized opinion. They spoke for God, but it wasn't God's word. And it was just what they thought and and it had zero biblical support. And I'm watching this and you know, they had a certain style that seemed to be, it seemed to be more like a comedy stand-up routine. One guy had like a stocking cap on. He was like a, I don't know, middle-aged guy. So imagine me in a stocking cap and a big long trench coat walking around. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Please do something if I ever do anything like that. Get that big hook. Mm. It was pop, it's popular, it's entertaining. It wasn't biblical. So not only was it just, you know, a teaching I would disagreement, it wasn't even God's word. My reaction to this brother was to say, you know, I'm not even sure I would call this a church. Or that they're actually pastors. Because a pastor is charged by the word of God to preach the word. To preach the scripture and not simply your popular thoughts and opinions. And apparently these massive gatherings of people, this is what they want, tickling ears. Maybe a more obvious corruption we would see in the prosperity movement. Here in America, it's mostly an appeal to people's greed. A love of money. A spiritual corruption that isn't following God but only using him for what they really want. Here in America, it's greed. But I've been reminded, you know, in other parts of the world, this is a message, this is a cruel message of Satan that isn't so much appealing to greed, it's, it's suffering people who are just desperate. Satan's a liar. And he has a variety of ways to uh, appeal to people's desires, whether it be greed or desperation or indulgence of sinful pleasures or pride, as long as it doesn't result in what Jesus prays, which is being sanctified by the truth of God's word. Satan wants anything but that, anything but being people being sanctified by the truth of God's word. There's a lot of different strategies Michael Horton rightly described this in his book, Christless Christianity. He, he asked this great question, you know, what would it look like if Satan really took over a city? Over half a century ago, Presbyterian minister Donald Gray Barnhouse offered his scenario in his weekly sermon that is also, was also broadcasted nationwide on CBS radio. Barnhouse speculated that if Satan took over Philadelphia, the city in which he pastored, here's what he said. All of the bars would be closed, pornography banished, and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am, and the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. 
Satan's goal is not only or primarily immorality. It's corruption of the truth. And if Satan corrupts the message, then it's not really the truth, and that message can't set anyone free. But Jesus prayed. He prayed for us. And verse 17 tells us the vision that Jesus has for his church. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So again... You know, we might describe Bear Creek Church as being friendly and lighthearted and desiring to be like a family. We might be a church that, that loves children and makes efforts to keep them safe. We may love being connected to missionaries around the world and supporting local ministries. We may encourage discipleship in small groups or in mentoring Programs. We may be theologically reformed. There might be a lot of things that we love and encourage, things that may come and go, but what we must always be, what must always be true of us, is the priority of Jesus' vision. All that we are must agree with and be a result of His vision, because ultimately, It will always be his church. We exist for him, not he for us. We conform to him, not he to our culture and time. Jesus' vision for us is, is holiness and truth. Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. He wants us to be holy. Sanctify them. Set them apart. Make them holy. Change them so that they turn from sin and embrace godliness. Let me ask you a question. Do you want to be described as holy? It's interesting, and and maybe this is a strategy of Satan, but... I bet many of you cringe at that. Cringe at being described as holy. Is it guilt? Is it, is it an awareness of our sinful struggles? Or is it maybe a desire to not be hated? Because there's a negative association with the word holy in society. People describe someone as being and this is not a compliment, you holier than thou. Hypocrite. Wrongly associating holiness with being judgmental and self-righteous and unrelatable. But God has called us to holiness. Leviticus 11, God declares, for I am the Lord your God, consecrate sanctify, set yourself apart, consecrate yourself therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. And the thought continues on in the New Testament. In First Peter we read, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We are called to be different than the world, 
different from who we once were, to be obedient to God, set apart as those who represent God, glorify him. And the person who perfectly represents God is Jesus. So being holy, being sanctified, is to progressively grow and desire to be more and more like Jesus. That sounds better, doesn't it? Jesus, who wasn't self-righteous. Jesus, who wasn't uppity. Who lived in the world. Yes, his judgment was right, and he didn't endorse or excuse sin, but he lived among sinners. He was a friend to them. He was gracious and forgiving, and those who were threatened by him hated him. So shouldn't our experience be similar to that? We should be around unbelievers. We should be their friends. And this doesn't mean that we endorse or encourage sin, but we, we can be kind, we can be loving, and we can point them to the good news of the gospel. And if they hate us for that, if they feel threatened by the truth, then isn't this what Jesus expected for us? If you know Jesus, then you are holy, you are set apart. Your ultimate purpose is to show people who Jesus is by resembling him, by telling them about him. This is his vision for the church, for his church. People who are sanctified in the truth. We are to be holy. We are to be a people changed into the likeness of Jesus. And the means that God uses to accomplish this is his word. God's word, the Bible, is truth. And the truth sets us free. The truth changes our heart's desire. God's word is the means that he uses to sanctify us. Hebrews 4 speaks of the power of God's word. For the word of God is living, it is active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Second Timothy, we read all scripture, is breathed out by God. It is not man. It wasn't these apostles' ideas or, or their opinions. It is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped, parents, equipped for every good work. This is the vision of his church, holiness and truth. People being conformed into the image of Jesus through the Holy Spirit-empowered scriptures. This is our calling as, as pastors, not to give simple opinions and inspirational talks, but to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Jesus' vision for Christians involves the church, churches where pastors know their calling this weight of responsibility to teach what's true. This is why we, we can't live the Christian life on our own or simply in a group of peers. 
Church is a safe place to be. It's safe to have shepherds who, who love you and will, if necessary, tell you the, the truth, correct you when you're falling into sin according to God's word. I'm, I'm thankful to have elders who are gonna tell me the truth. I have pastors too who will hold me accountable and correct me when I'm wrong, who aren't afraid to do so. I honestly don't understand those who don't want the safety of God's church. They must think too highly of themselves. I need the church. It's a bad idea to be your own authority. We need God's church, one that's submissive to the ultimate authority of God's word. This is what you should expect of Bear Creek Church. We may be about a lot of things, but primarily we exist to encourage your growth in holiness through the teaching of God's word. God's word, which is authoritative, which is true, which is without error because it was breathed out by God and he sovereignly kept his word for his church. And in hearing this, there's a decision that we all need to make. We need to ask ourselves, do I desire to become more holy? Do I desire my life to make an eternal difference in our, in our present world? And if so, then hear God's word which tells us, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And what transforms us is the word of God. If this is what we want, then we must be a people who devote ourselves to the study of scripture. And not for simply a season, but as a part of a committed lifestyle. We need to be people of the word. And when we do, we're going to see the, the truth of Jesus' prayer that, that we're being sanctified in the truth of God's word. And we're making a, a real difference, an eternal difference in the world around us. Let that, let that be our prayer. Let this be the vision of God's church. Let's pray. Father, your word is truth. Truth that has set us free in Christ. Truth that penetrates our hearts and transforms us into the image of your son, Jesus. Give us a greater desire to share this truth in the world in which we live. Lord, may we be a church that is ultimately about your vision to grow in holiness by the truth and power of your word. And in doing so, we pray and we trust that all of the other things that define us, that we are passionate about and enjoy, that is our personality as Bear Creek Church, we pray that all of those things, that they'll be all the more effective and glorifying to you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your word given to the apostles, 
preserved for us so that we may believe in and rightly follow you. We pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.